electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Forget all the talk about a recession ahead. It could already be here. We're going to tell you why and whether the Fed is just ignoring it or doesn't want to talk about it. PIMCO's Paul McCulley says don't expect anything to change until Jackson Hole. That's not till August. He joins us live along with Jason Trennert and our own Steve Leesman. Speaking of which, the job cuts piling up. Spotify, the latest to shed workers. Google's cuts leaving people speechless. Meanwhile, Microsoft just made another multi-billion dollar bet on ChatGPT. We'll talk about all of it. And we're trying to build a 21st century economy on mid-20th century technology. That's how Congressman Jim Himes described the recent FAA debacle. We'll ask the man in charge to respond, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. But first, let's begin with today's markets. Dom Chu here to run through all the green, Dom. Decidedly green. Everything's so green on the screen, Kelly, right now. So it's been of a nice move higher for the overall stock market. The Dow Industrials are, believe it or not, the underperformer, only up about a percent right now, 308 points, 33,684. The S&P is back above 4,000, 4,028, up 56 handles, or roughly 1.5%. And to give you a context of that trading range so far today, we are near the highs. At the highs right now, up about 61 points, down one point at the lows. Now, the Nasdaq composite, the real standout here. 2% 2% plus gains for 11,374, up 235 points for the composite because of real big moves higher in technology, communication services, and what's happening with consumer discretionary. That being said, one of the big thematic elements we're watching right now is in cryptocurrencies. Believe it or not, Bitcoin prices topped 23,000 at one point earlier today. They're back above there right now. Two and a half percent gains for Bitcoin, 23,032. The reason why it's important is you got to go all the way back to what's happening earlier this summer in June for some of these higher levels that we've seen here. So again, some interesting moves higher in Bitcoin. And by the way, a level to watch, 23,500 or thereabouts. That's the 200-day moving average for Bitcoin. Watch that. Speaking of digital payments and currencies, a group of banks, including J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and others, credit card issuers like Visa and MasterCard could all be part of a consortium that are looking to develop a digital wallet to compete with the likes of Apple Pay and PayPal. That's according to a report from the Wall Street Journal. Those names right now catching a bit of bid here. Wells Fargo's up 2%, B of A, all up a pretty decent amount. And then watch this for a stock. Salesforce, another group of activists gets involved, headlined by Elliott Management. CRM shares up 3.5% right now. They've been taking a beating. Kelly, at the highs back in the fall of 2021, this was a $300 billion company. Today, it's closer to around $150, 160000000000 billion. CRM, Salesforce, a Dow component. Back over to you. Don, thank you very much. Now, stocks may be rallying today on hopes that the Fed will slow down the pace of rate hikes, but the latest data suggests we could already be in a recession. And if we're not already, we're getting very, very close. Take a look at this. The Conference Board's Index of Leading Economic Indicators came out this morning, 10 a.m. Eastern time, and another 1% drop just for the month of December. That was worse than expected, and it's the 10th straight monthly decline. And every time since 1959, at least, that the index has dropped more than 1% year on year, 
a recession has hit in the subsequent months. That's according to Jim Reed over at Deutsche Bank. We just dropped 1% in a month, guys. We're down almost 7.5% year on year. You can see back here, this is not a good track record. The conference board warning a recession is now imminent. Indicators like retail sales and manufacturing have already hit a wall. So why is the Fed still hiking interest rates? Let's ask my guest. Paul McCulley is former chief economist at PIMCO and an adjunct professor at Georgetown's McDonough School of Business. We also have Jason Trenard here. He's chairman and CEO of Strategus, a Baird company, and CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman rounds things out for us. Welcome to all of you. Paul, I'll start with you. Really? We have to wait till Jackson Hole for a more meaningful response from the Fed here? No, no, no. I, I don't think so. I think the Fed is already recognizing what's going on in the economy, what's going on with inflation. And they are at the meeting next week going to do 25 and not really lay out a plan for doing a whole lot more. Essentially, they've moved from front-loading the tightening process to now a bit of backfilling. But uh, the Fed's very cognizant of what's going on, uh, and I anticipate the Fed will stop uh, in this. Paul, I don't hear them talking about leading indicators at all. I hear them talking about core PCE and super core and how that's still high. And, and I don't hear any sense of urgency about them. I don't hear about the business cycle at all. I hear about the labor market. But next month's data, you know, I mean, it could show that payrolls are declining this month and that the recession's already here. And if it's not here now, it'll probably be here by what do you think, March or April? I'm not anticipating a recession. I'm anticipating a soft landing. And the Fed doesn't talk about leading indicators per se because they talk about the whole mosaic uh, of data. So uh, I would not be critical of the Fed here. Uh, I think they recognize what's going on. They recognize they're tight. The yield curve's inverted. Real rates are positive. Uh, so I think the Fed uh, is willing to entertain an optimistic outlook, uh, as Governor Waller uh, expressed in an interview uh, with Steve just this last Friday. Oh, it's Steve, okay, and let me turn to you, Mr. Leesman. Here's what I don't understand. It, it's totally fine to say employment strong. I get that. That, that. That's fine. You can talk until you're blue in the face about it. But what is the response to what's going on with these leading indicators to the fact that manufacturing, if you exclude autos, has probably been in a recession since last April. If you want to throw autos in there, even industrial production the last couple months, terrible retail sales, terrible. I mean, across the gamut here, things are looking kind of scary. You have to go back a little bit to the idea that they're they're They have said in the past that pain is coming and an outlook for pain is part of the forecast. So there is some decline how much of a decline we don't know that is built into their forecast, which means that they will stay the course on rates despite what's happened to ISM services being attracted in territory, manufacturing being attracted in territory. I, I think the analogy of the, the uh, fire ranger is the best one, which is you and I, if we went camping, we'd put a bucket of water on the fire. The Fed's going to pour five buckets of water on the fire to make sure the fire is out, which means they're going to go longer than the market expects, and they're going to stay there, I think, longer than the market expects. It may be they're on the cusp of some kind of change, but what they need is cover to duck, and the cover is going to come from the data. I asked Waller on Friday how much you need, and he said, I thought it was three months. Now he says it's five months. So I said, we're all a bit like Dorothy here in Wizard of Oz where we keep thinking we have what we've done, the the task we were assigned to do to get back to Kansas. Well, they keep 
you know, given us, now we got to get a heart for the lion in order to click our heels and get back to Kansas. All right, Jason, let me bring you in here because you, I'm sure you have clients who are trying to figure out whether they want equity exposure. And, you know, again, you look at those who are more concerned that the business cycle is turning over who would say you should be selling these rallies. I'm, and I have to say, I'm one of those, uh, I'm one of those folks because I think that the Fed is, I, I think, I think Steve is right. I might, I might go one more step than Fire Ranger. I think that's how they're acting now. I think for the past 30 years, they've largely been acting like pyromaniac <laughs> and firemen at, at the same time. Uh, so, you know, going from pillar to post. But I think now, I think Steve is absolutely right. And I think, I think Paul is right, too. I, I think what the Fed is telling you, and regardless of my feelings, what the Fed is telling you is that they would rather make the mistake of risking a mild recession um, rather than risking the, the stop-and-go monetary policies in the 70s, which, which forced the Fed to fight inflation three times, each at successively higher rates of inflation. And I think if we just think about what the Fed's responsibilities are, which is price stability and full employment, he'd say, well, um, you know, the unemployment rate is 3.6%, claims are 190 uh, and inflation is still over six. So the Fed still has more to do. And that's, right, that's Jason, one thing from an equity perspective, I would argue you have to be careful because regardless of what we want, I think the Fed is telling you what it's going to do. And I, I don't think it's particularly positive for risk assets. You know, fair enough. And, and by the way, this might be the one show where I'm less interested in what they will do <laughs> than in what they should do. So <laughs> let me I put that on. I totally agree with you about what they will do. But in terms of what they should do, Jason, the markets are telling them that the job is already done on inflation. If you look at the break evens, they were three and a half percent last March before these aggressive hikes. They're way down to two point two percent. Like they, they 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 got the job done. There's Kelly, no to tell you what chart we have up there. I just want people to understand it, and Jason and Paul. We've done a chart showing where the Fed expected 2023 rates to be. That's the orange line. And then I have the market yield for the 2023 June, sorry, the June 24 contract, which tells you the 2023 outlook. And you can see that gap has redeveloped like it was in the summer. The market's not where they're, no, no, So people understand the the thing. And what that shows is that the market is 70 basis points or so below where the Fed is for year end. That's three quarter points. Yeah, it's significant. Jason, why can't they just look at the signals here and say the market is telling us inflation remains in long run? There's they have pulled back the breakout and expectations. They could stop here. They, they could. I think, though, Kelly, and I would say I, I, I would be more in the, inclined in their camp to kind of keep at it, uh, to use Paul Volcker's term, because uh, inflation, once established, is, is hard to defeat. Uh, we just passed a $1.8 trillion fiscal stimulus package. 60% of federal spending is indexed to inflation. So the cost of living adjustment to Social Security is 8.7%. Mm. Uh, the labor markets are still tight, and financial conditions are actually about as easy now as they were before the Russia-Ukraine uh, war. So I, I would argue that they should I'd be in the five buckets of water category, you know, make sure that that fire is out uh, before they pull their punches. In many ways, we earned, uh, over-earned, uh, companies over-earned, people over-earned. Um, asset prices went up too much during yeah. the pandemic. And I think, unfortunately, now we might just have to take our medicine for a little while 
and, and hopefully they can um, they can engineer a soft landing as Paul's is Paul, uh, hoping or, or forecasting. Let me turn back to you, Paul. Why do you think we're likely to avoid a recession? When you look, you know the data better than anybody. I, what I just said about the index of leading indicators, we're not making this stuff up. This isn't about what the bond market thinks. This is the data itself. We've never had a period like this that hasn't been followed by a recession and within a couple months time. Why do you think this is going to be different? The dominant thing is the labor market is still incredibly sturdy. Um, and also, I think that a lot of the data that we're seeing, the leading in, uh, economic indicators, as well as what's going on in the purchasing manager survey, is re reflecting the back end of what is known as the bullwhip effect. Sure. And that we had a surge uh, in manufacturing as everyone tried to keep up with the uh, demand and uh, the supply constraints. We had an inventory overhang, and now that is working itself out. Uh, so I would not extrapolate from the historical experience to start pounding the table that we've got to have a recession now. Uh, we are living in a unique post-pandemic world. Why aren't they talking about that, Steve? This is the discussion I'd love them to have, to say, we see what the indicators are doing. Here's why we think <clears throat> this is different. Here's why we're ignoring that. Here's why history doesn't apply right now. As you know, Kelly, the one place where I have been very critical of the Fed is in groupthink. Um, and I think that's a really important issue. I'm amazed that you have the gap that we put up and there aren't members of the FOMC who have embraced at least where the market is. Maybe it's two, maybe it's three, maybe it's four, but there aren't many who are there. In fact, I know there's none because if the market has yet 440 for the end of the year, every single Fed member is above 490. Unless Brainerd so is starting none. to crack. And I will tell you one thing that just pushes a little bit against what Jason, Jason's wisdom, which was very wise, I think, earlier, is this. There's nothing that tells me there's been a sufficient change in the Fed process such that I can believe they're not making the exact same mistake they made a year ago in everybody gathering around, holding hands and kumbaya on transitory, that now they're holding <laughs> hands and kumbaya on the idea that inflation is not going to go away quickly. Jason? Yeah, listen, I think the Fed, again, this is you know what, what you, they, you think they should do versus what they will do, but the Fed is very much of a Phillips curve organization, which is just you know, fancy way of saying they spend a lot of time looking at the labor markets. And that is why, in my opinion, they made the mistake in, in thinking that inflation was transitory because the unemployment rate was, was quite high at the start of 2021. Uh, that may be one of the reasons why they're staying too tight uh, now. But again, you know, my job with my clients is to try to figure out what's likely well, they to happen. Be. And it's above my pay grade. You know, I think, <laughs> you know, Paul has a legitimate shot at being on the FOMC. I, I'm just a, you know, I'm just a humble broker here uh, trying to help our clients. And uh, I, I think they're going to um, they're going to make the mistake of being too tight. I think they usually do. And I, it seems likely that that that's what's going to yeah, happen. I, this I just time. love how we're all so resigned. Everyone comes out and goes, yeah, they're going to be too tight. Well, do they have to be? If everyone comes out and says something different, do we have a chance? <laughs> if we all join hands and we yeah. sing Kumbaya, maybe do we have a chance? <laughs> Paul McCauley, quick, quick last word from you on uh, the stage here. I think the Fed is being successful. Uh, I think they got caught uh, on the back foot with respect to the inflation after the pandemic. Uh, they exaggerated the transitory aspects of it. But in the fullness of time, 
this is turning out to be a lot of transitory inflation. It's not immaculately transitory. They had to tighten 400 odd basis points, but we are seeing uh, the unwind of what happened uh, in the pandemic. And we're uh, also seeing a very strong labor market. There's a lot to be optimistic about this All economy. Right. We'll the leave it there. By, by the way, Steve, are we in the quiet period now before yeah, the meeting? Yeah, blackout period started, I think, uh, this morning, I guess. So that's really. it. We're not going to, if there's going to be any change in course, we'll have to rely on you or others. No, no, to... no. What's really interesting is there is data between now and then. True. PC and so now we've got to process it through the reaction function of what we, how we think the Fed would react. They're going 25, and the question is, do they guide us to another 25? The small possibility that they might be done after this thing, right. especially if the data continues to go south. And the markets are jumping ahead, like you said. Yep. We'll leave it there, everybody. Thank you so much. Steve Leisman, Jason Trenard, and Paul McCauley. Still ahead, China's COVID surge casting a shadow over the Lunar New Year travel rush. We'll ask Morgan Stanley's former Asia chair, Stephen Roach, about the country's new policy. Plus, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg will join us with his reaction to the FAA's debacle and the future of infrastructure funding. But first, three big names reporting results before the bell tomorrow as earnings season is off to a rocky start. We have the action, the story, and those trades next in earnings exchange. And as we head to break, here's another quick look at the markets where the Dow is still up three 120 points. The Nasdaq leading the way as it has all month. The exchange is back after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. Earnings season has kind of gotten off on the wrong foot here. So can the next crop of results turn things around? We've got the action, the story, and the trade today on Energy Bellwether Halliburton, home builder DR Horton, and stalwart J&J. First up is Halliburton. Believe it or not, the stock is almost back to where it traded last June when gasoline prices were over $5 a gallon nationwide. And they've booked a 47% gain over the past year. But there's more to the story. CNBC's Pippa Stevens has the details for us. And today, Boris Schlossberg joins us with our trades. He is managing director of FX strategy at BK Asset Management and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to both of you. Pippa, what are you watching? All right, Kelly. Well, expectations here are high. As you said, the stock is up sharply over the last year. I think the first thing to watch here is how the outlook in North America looks. Uh, Halliburton is the third of the big three to report their results. We heard from SLB that rig activity might be plateauing in North America. And we heard from Baker Hughes today that the outlook is uncertain given that uh, there's a lot of volatility around oil and gas prices. So the first thing to watch is how does North America look? And then in the same vein, how does international and offshore look? 
outlook because if things do slow down in North America, then revenue from the international and offshore operations will be that much more important. So how are those things looking and how can Halliburton take advantage of those opportunities? And then finally, the dividend. Everyone is so focused on the capital return programs from these big energy companies. And given that Halliburton does pay a lower dividend than Baker Hughes and SLV, investors might be looking for some clarity going forward on how they see their return program. But, you know, as you said, expectations here are high. And so you got to wonder if it's not a beaten a race type situation, how will the stock trade tomorrow? Absolutely. There's that 1% dividend yield you referenced. Boris, what do, what do you think about Halliburton? How they do on the quarterly. I am very bullish Halliburton. Now, of all the three stocks we're going to talk about today, this one has, I think, the strongest chance for upside, simply because it's really a secular story here. There's a massive, massive resurgence of, of energy exploration because governments across the world, I think, have changed policy away from just being purely green to understanding that energy now is as much a matter of national security as it is a matter of economic, um, of, you know, economic strength. And therefore, I think you're going to see for the next two or three years very, very strong flows into the energy sector. Halliburton is the primary beneficiary of that. So you got to love it just on a, on a, on a longer term basis, regardless of whether what kind of bumps in the roads they have on the quarter basis. Why? So would you be bullish on energy, Boris, even if the U.S. economy slows or is slowing quite significantly this year? Well, as I said, you know, you're going to have perhaps some cyclical slowdowns, but regardless, the longer term investments into energy exploration are going to go. And it's not it's not a story just here. It's going to be a story across the world. Plus, we really don't know, you know, if China does come back online, um, the decline in U.S. demand could be offset by um, up um, uptake in Chinese demand. So to me, I think it's just a sort of a longer term secular bull story as energy is now becoming, um, as I said, a matter of national security rather than just simply an economic um, good. And therefore, Halliburton really begins is the primary player in this space that helps um, countries all across the world do much better energy exploration. Oh, sure. And everything you said about the China offset, we'll explore more later on where people are really looking yeah. uh, to that potential. Pippa, for now, thank you, our Pippa Stevens. Let's turn now to the home building sector. Housing, everybody knows what a problem this has been. They uh, take the sector as a whole. We've been largely range bound over the past year, which is kind of impressive considering the collapse we've had in home sales and falling prices as well. We turn to Diana Olick for the story. Diana? Well, Kelly, in this report, I think we have to be laser focused on mortgage rates, because remember, in this recent run up in rates, the peak was at the end of October when the 30 year fix went over 7 percent. Then throughout November and December, that rate came steadily down and sharply down in December. So that's going to be factored into this quarterly report, especially we want to see the commentary on that. And remember, D.R. Horton is the largest home builder in the nation by volume, but they also have that special Express Homes brand, which is an entry level brand. Now, a lot of the home builders have been doing incentives like buying down mortgage rates and reporting that they're adding all sorts of extra amenities. But D.R. Horton can't really do that in that express brands level because it's already so low. So we want to see if this lower mortgage rate is going to factor into the new orders, which we expect to be down, but how far down. And then, of course, we did see home builder sentiment improve in January, again, because of those lower mortgage rates. But one more thing I think we have to watch is cancellation rates. They have been sky high recently for the builders. Are they starting to come down? now as mortgage rates come back, all factors to watch, Kelly. And Boris, you're not necessarily jumping onto this trade. I mean, the sector's made a big move off of those uh, October lows Diana was talking about. 
that's that's really the reason why I'm so hesitant. It's not that I don't like the story long term. And D.H. Horton is obviously, I think, the bellwether in the in the in the uh, segment. And actually, its share of the total uh, homes built continues to grow. So it really continues to just simply grab market share. So if you're a long term investor, I think it's a very strong story. It's just that the stock has bounced so much off the November lows that I think it's gotten a little bit too far uh, ahead of itself. Yes, mortgage rates have come down, but you know we still have the Fed that, that is tightening. You just guys talked about the fact that Ted, the Fed may tighten too much. And that's obviously um, hangs over D.H. Horton, I think, as far as demand goes forward. I like, I love the stock sort of long term. I think it's probably a much better candidate as a, as a put sale. You can sell the 95s three months out and um, you know get a very decent cost entry position. And if they expire worthless, you get like 20% annualized return. So to me, it's sort of a safer bet to maybe do that rather than just simply buy the underlying right now. Sure. Bless you, Diana. And by the way, 10 times forward. We have a double digit P.E. on a home building stock. And, and now 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 I don't like it now. That, that, now that's making well, me nervous. You know, the problem with home building stocks is you really can't look at them in valuation. They trade much more on momentum and sentiment than valuation. So you can't, you know, you have to uh, take that much more into account than the valuation. Uh, All right. There it is on your screens. Thank you both. We appreciate it. Boris, stick around. Diana, we'll let you go as we turn our attention to Johnson & Johnson. The CEO made some cautious comments about the macro outlook just a week ago. So should we be braced for more bad news? Meg Terrell has more. Hi, Meg. Hey, Kelly. Well, those comments which were made at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference really caught the attention of a lot of analysts. And there is a debate going about where J&J's 2023 guidance is going to come in because of that cautious outlook that the CEO, Joaquin Duato, really outlined in terms of things like inflation, pricing pressure, things going on in China in terms of COVID and their drug pricing policies, austerity measures in Europe, all of that. So we're really going to be watching the 2023 guidance very closely. Of course, the company is also in the midst of spinning off its consumer unit. That's all those well-known brands like Listerine and Tylenol and Band-Aids. What's going to remain are medical devices and the pharmaceuticals unit. Those are expected to continue to see pretty good growth, continued recovery for medical devices from when people were not getting these procedures done during the pandemic. Pharma expected to do well. Closely watched uh, will be the COVID vaccine. The commentary around that is J&J has uh, largely de-emphasized it, and there's been reports they've stopped manufacturing it or at least cut that back uh, significantly. So that'll be something to watch really closely as well. And then finally, we did mention that consumer unit. They are spinning that out. Uh, but there have been all those shortages of things like Tylenol and Motrin. So what's happening uh, with that business now as the flu season and RSV and COVID have all come at the same time and made that really challenging? Exactly. Kelly. Boris, on that note, do you think they're exposed to segments of the market you want to be in or would you stay away from the stock? I, you know, I think they're they're a dividend aristocrat. Their long-term market share is great. Their businesses are essentially recession-proof. So long-term J&J looks very strong. But there is this big sort of Damocles that holds um, that it hangs around them because of the liability um, mm. uh, of the um, baby powder lawsuits. Um, they've sort of tried to spin away those liabilities by using a Texas law and put all those liabilities into an entity that they capitalize at $2 billion. But of course, the plaintiffs are after their balance sheet, which has $25 billion worth of cash on hand. So a lot of, I think, the problem here is that there's existential risk as far as where the bankruptcy courts are going to decide. If they're going to allow them to do what they just did, in which case then then the lawsuit risk goes away. Or if they um, nullify that, then I think you're going to have a much stronger, possibly much uh, higher volatility move in J&J. So to me, that's the risk here. Great Longer term, investors need to be aware of. I feel prepared for the morning. I, I, you know, I don't know if I should we be braced for What letter grade would you give earnings season so far going through it? You asking me? Yeah. Uh, 
let's let's give it a B minus. Uh, better improvement. <laughs> it's a C student, but you're giving them a break because it's early. I know exactly. how that I'm goes. Bending on a curve. Yeah. I'm on a curve. <laughs> we'll leave it there. Thank you both very much. Boris Schlossberg with our trades today. Meg Trail, thank you for reporting as well. Still ahead, all the tech job cuts are adding up, and there could be even more on the way. We'll round up the headlines and look at who could be next. As we head to break, let's take another glance back at the Dow heat map. With uh, I can just walk in front of it here, and I can tell you, oh, no, they moved it. Three names are in the red today. Here they are. PG, Amgen, and the J&J we were just discussing. Leading the way, everybody. Intel up 3.5%. Apple up 3% back to 142. We're back after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to the exchange. NASDAQ has been storming back this month, up about 7%. Tech on two and a quarter percent to that as well. We're at uh, session highs pretty much for the markets right now. S&P's up one and a half percent. The Dow's up 336. Ten-year yields, by the way, flip side of the coin. They're down 40 basis points in this month. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. Here's what's happening at this hour. First, sanctions violations and now a charge of taking illegal payments against a former high-level FBI agent. Charles McGonagall oversaw investigations of Russian oligarchs. He's been charged now with helping sanctioned oligarch Oleg Deripaska money laundering and also hiding a $225,000 payment from a foreign official while still at the FBI. In Pakistan, an attempt to save fuel has left most of the country without power. Engineers unable to restart generators following an overnight shutdown. Power has been restored in some areas, but outages remain in many cities more than 12 hours after they began. And a robot designed to help stroke victims walk again has received FDA approval. The exoskeleton from the French company Wondercraft uses self-balancing software to help patients take their first steps after a stroke and then relearn a more natural stride. Kelly, Very hope nice. there. Back to Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thank you, Ty. Still ahead, the China conundrum. Supply chain pressures should ease, but spiking demand could make everything more expensive just as the U.S. economy is slowing. But will short-term pain deliver longer-term gains? We'll ask Stephen Roach next. Welcome back. While we're seeing signs that inflation here in the U.S. is cooling, it feels a bit like Groundhog Day when you look over at China. The Wall Street Journal reporting that while Chinese consumers were in lockdown, they saved more than $2 trillion, which can now fuel pent-up spending demand. And costs are already rising. Hotel rates have jumped as people start to travel. Food prices were up nearly 5% in December from the prior year. Global energy prices are up too. Oil rising 13% since early January, while gasoline futures are at two-month highs, right as the U.S. consumer is slowing. So will China's reopening help or hurt the global economy? Here to help make sense of it all is Stephen Roach, senior fellow at Yale University and former chairman at Morgan Stanley Asia. It's great to see you again. Welcome back. Thanks, Kelly. Great to see you. What do you think is the correct narrative about China's reopening? And it does come at an interesting time as the U.S. is losing momentum. Well, for, for any economy, a reopening after a lockdown or a, 
quasi lockdown is is a positive for growth. But I think, you know, you have to be careful in using the U.S. Uh, post lockdown as, uh, experience as a template for what could happen uh, for the Chinese consumer, as your headlines just showed. I mean, <clears throat> Chinese consumption is less than 40 percent of, uh, of its GDP. In the U.S., the number is closer to 70. Uh, Chinese consumers didn't get stimulus checks like uh, we did uh, in the U.S., and their biggest asset is is the home where there's significant downward pressure on housing prices. And that was not a factor uh, in the post-lockdown snapback of the U.S. So, sure, the, the economy is going to come back as they move out of this uh, post-zero COVID uh, policy, which was absurd to, uh, from, from the get-go. But um, uh, it, it's probably going to be a more limited snapback than uh, they and the markets seem to believe right now. Is it a help or a hindrance for the U.S. economy? Because even for businesses, and we're already hearing investors looking for companies whose China exposure can offset their U.S. weakness, but, but the probably overarching concern is about profit margins. And explain how you think this kind of reopening will cause maybe near-term inflation, longer-term deflation. What, what is the dynamic exactly that we should expect? Well, again, there's going to be a lot of short-term volatility, and I think the uh, the conclusion is going to be that uh, the China snapback is going to be positive for global growth when other economies are going the other way, and that will cushion uh, what might otherwise be a global recession. Uh, you know, I think that's a reasonable conclusion to draw uh, on a very, very short-term basis. But I think the the bigger story is what happens after the, uh, the snapback. And the Chinese uh, long-term growth outlook uh, is much, much weaker than long-term China optimists like myself. Hmm. Uh, I've been bullish on China for 25 years. It's much weaker now going forward than we had thought because of the demographic issues and because of a lot of factors that are <clears throat> holding back Chinese productivity growth. So, the best way to look at this is the five-year growth rate, you know, which goes looks through the volatility. Uh, at the end of this year, is going to be a number probably below five um, percent, uh, and that same five-year growth rate peaked at nearly twelve percent. Wow! Uh, uh, in the depths of the financial crisis, so don't count on China to be the, you know, the savior of the global economy like it was in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. And I apologize if I missed this, but have you turned into more of a bear on China then? I am definitely more concerned about China than I've ever been in the 25 years that I have been uh, following China. And for most of that period, uh, I've been um, a screaming uh, a bull on China. But uh, the, the current leadership under Xi Jinping uh, has moved the needle on reforms and with impacts on productivity that I think are very, very worrisome. And the deepening Chinese conflict, which I've written, just written a new book about, uh, is uh, causing further uh, problems for um, China on the technology front that are likely to be long lasting. So yeah, I'm much more concerned about China than I have ever been. What, if they sort of resort to, to any possible last measures here, as I expect the chairman to do, right? I mean, he, he still has to have a growing economy in order to fund the military and, and all the rest of it. So what other options and, and levers does he have? 
Well, that's the beauty of a you know state-directed system. He's got plenty of levers of state control that he can pull that he's pulling right now uh, with respect to um, uh, investment spending uh, and um, uh, reversing course and some of the the uh, restrictive moves he's made in the in the property sector. Uh, and you know the biggest short-term one is the one we've discussed, abandoning this uh, zero COVID policy. So, you know, the state has lots of levers to pull, but the state ultimately can't uh, uh, unwind um, uh, the demographic pressures, which are very real. I mean, the working age population has been shrinking since 2015, and the state is uh, complicating the, the productivity offset that would normally uh, uh, be helpful in uh, reversing the, product, uh, the the demographic pressures. Quick, quick final word then. I'm an investor thinking through this. What sectors do I want to be or not want to be exposed to then in China right now? Well, look, technology is the, the one that's been focused on. It's been beaten down and now it's bouncing off the bottom as the government's trying to sort of spin the idea that they're walking back these uh, regulatory pressures. I don't buy it for a second. I mean, you know, take uh, uh, ride sharing. The state is now introducing a new state-owned enterprise that will take the place of Didi, and they're still restricting a lot of the activities like video uh, streaming and gaming and music. And and so I think uh, that sector is 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 still under trouble. Hmm. Healthcare, they need that. Uh, all the safety net uh, uh, areas, I think, would be uh, still long-term uh, positive for China. Very interesting, especially for people who have bid up K-Web, for instance, on hopes uh, of reopening. Stephen Roach, thanks, as always, for your time. We appreciate it today. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you. Yale University. Still ahead, the tech reckoning continues with Alphabet, the latest mega cap to cut jobs. We'll dig into that and how those layoffs could play into the fight for AI dominance. That's next. The layoffs in tech continue to pile up, with Spotify announcing they'll lay off 6% of the workforce. This after Google parent Alphabet revealed its plans to lay off 12,000 workers on Friday, and they're under scrutiny for how they went about informing employees they were out of a job. CNBC.com tech reporter Jennifer Elias spoke to some of those Google workers over the weekend who told her they were locked out of company properties and provided very few details. Now, amid all of this, Google is also reportedly scrambling to catch up in the AI fight. The New York Times' Nico Grant reported last week that Google called and founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin to help. Let's get into all of it now. Nico and Jennifer, they're here, along with Steve Kovac, who has some new developments on Microsoft's AI efforts. Welcome to all of you. Steve, first, what are these new developments we're learning about? Yeah, so we finally got confirmation that Microsoft is going to dump billions more into OpenAI. That's the company that makes that popular chat GPT bot. Now, I asked Microsoft. They're not giving specifics on how much they're going to invest, but we do know those previous reports, I believe as SEMA 4 first broke it, it's going to be $10 billion over the course of the year tied to some, you know, milestones and things like that. Got it. So they're confirming the $10 billion. And they also, I'm sure they well, haven't. Well, not confirming the $10 billion. Multi-billion is the Multi-billion, word yes. thank you. And that they will retain a very large percent of the profits that's then, right. as yeah. a result that, That's of- the way, they're not disclosing that, but the reports say, yeah, they kind of get a sweetheart deal on this and they get to recoup their profits before they, you know, move forward. All right. It. So let's turn to Nico for details. Nico, I mean, I was thinking about this today as I was trying to find one simple email in my Outlook box. If they could tell me that ChatGPT GPT was going to make Outlook search better, then maybe I'd believe that Bing and all the rest of it is going to be the next step. What are you hearing? You're going to see Google really apply 
this type of AI that's amazed audiences around the world. Um, you're going to see it across every product area. And so, you know, there was a time back in 2008, speaking of email, when Larry Page saw a new feature for Gmail and was unimpressed because he asked, why can't that write why can't it write the email for you? Hmm. And there's just going to be a lot more of that. We're also going to see this year a demonstration of Google Search that has chatbot features that are similar to OpenAI. There are going to be features for YouTube and for the Pixel phone that can create images. It's really uh, going to start filtering out to Google's users this Although, year. Although, Nico, I the user, the user, what are we going to call this? The use case of Google. I mean, you tell me, you try Googling anything on your phone and finding the result that you want to instead of 12 sponsored, you know, placement ads. The, the founders themselves, this is what they created Google to kind of go against. And it strayed so far from that original purpose. It's kind of ironic that they're now coming in trying to improve it. It's like, just get rid of all the ads. That would be a good start. Well, the ads bring in $149 billion in revenue a year. And so Google isn't going to get rid of them. But you're right that the founders were always skeptical of ads. And when Google launched back in 1998, it didn't have any ads. And over time, we've seen that as they've had this very lucrative business model, it's been very tempting to just pour more and more ads uh, and, and sponsored posts into search results. That's really attracted a lot of criticism. Uh, to Google in recent years, and that's why when ChatGPT showed up on the scene late last year, there were so many across Silicon Valley who thought Google was ripe for disruption. Sure. No, that's a very good way to put it. So, Jen, at the same time they're doing these layoffs, who's leaving, who's staying, and where should we expect their $10 billion equivalent to be pouring into? Right, Kelly, we're seeing a lot of people from different segments and units of the company there's no one specific area where they're seeing a ton more layoffs than the others. We're seeing software engineers, marketing folks, sales folks, um, folks in experimental units, more experimental projects that they have going. Um, and it's across the board. And that's part of what's a little bit confusing for these employees is some of them are recently promoted, um, have high performance ratings, and had been there over 20 years for some of them. And so to be locked out the way they were, they told me that they expected that maybe at another company, but not so much at Google, which has you know, been very vocal about being transparent and uh, treating their employees well and like family. So um, came a bit of a sh as a shock to them. Yeah. And Steve, there's, it's not just them. When Meta did their layoffs, they had to hire consultants because they basically never have to do mass, right. massive layoffs before and figure out, they said, well, I guess we go back over old performance reviews. I mean, these cultures are not well equipped, I guess, to deal with these downsizings. Coinbase, you hear that they're just literally at, almost at random right. choosing who's going to leave. And you wonder about the productivity of Twitter, those. by the way. Twitter, <laughs> right. Twitter, Twitter just made really case random. of burn yeah. it down. Yeah. And you do wonder how these companies are going to emerge uh, after these layoffs and whether they're done yet. Whether they're done yet, that's the real big question. And also, of course, I'm watching Apple. Are they going to be the next one? But look, let's talk about they're still investing. So we get this $10 billion announcement or report of the $10 billion announcement investing in chat GPT. I want to go back to what Nico said for just a second, how and your comment on Google ads. They have Google has yet to find its second act. It is still a search and advertising company. They need to grow. Therefore, stuffing more ads every time you search, you have to scroll a long time to get to those organic results. 
Does ChatGPT you know, solve that problem for them? I don't know. Maybe it makes Google search a little better. And I would also point out you know, what Nico said, they're going to announce more features this year. I'm going to guess, Nico, correct me if I'm wrong, probably at their Google I.O. events in May or June. And if they do that, they have such a horrible track record at that event. Announcing cool new things like whiz-bang features that you think are going to change the world, they never materialize. So I have a heavy dose of skepticism going in. If they do come up with these rival features, are they ever going to launch or ship? All right, Nico's got the Mona Lisa. What do you think, Nico? Quick last word. Yeah, so there will be new products that are unveiled at I.O. There will also be things that may come before or after, depending on timing. And while some things like search will be a demo, there will be other things that come to production. And so you will see uh, OpenAI has really pushed Google to go from just experimenting to putting some things in production. Well, it feels kind of exciting. It'd yeah. be great if, uh, if it, it gets a little more high stakes. Guys, we'll leave it there. Thank you all. Nico Grant, Jennifer Elias, and Steve Kovac. Now, a big trade proposed in the streaming world. We're going to speak with the analyst who says Disney should trade ESPN to our parent company, NBC, in exchange for Hulu. A deal he says will work for everyone. He'll make his case right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Check out some of these moves in media names today. We've got Netflix up more than 5% on that price target hike uh, to 390 over at Argus. Shares are 361. Paramount Global up 4%. Warner Brothers Discovery up 3%. Comcast up more than 2%. Uh, Disney as well. Maybe still the halo from Netflix. Positive results as well. But my next guest is here to talk about these last two names in particular, Comcast and Disney. There's a deal that could benefit both sides, he says, and it's quite intriguing. Let's bring in Peter Sapino, Managing Director and Senior Analyst with Wolf Research, to explain his idea. Peter, welcome. Thanks very much. So in a nutshell, you think there could be a swap here. It's almost like we're, we should be talking like we're, we're sports teams. So ESPN goes to NBC and in exchange, Disney gets to own all of Hulu. Is that right? Yes. Uh, Disney and Comcast both are facing overhang strategically because they have this co-ownership of Hulu that's designed to be broken up within the next year. And at the same time, NBC has some real considerations around how to get bigger in streaming and how to stay big in sports and news, which are key categories in streaming. And lastly, how to do it in a tax efficient manner. So, by the way, there have been plenty of people looking at how to slice and dice these all together. Here's one thing that's yes. that uh, one point of view that's being put out there. Could they continue to, sort of like co-parenting? Could they continue to co-own Hulu if this kind of swap doesn't happen in a way that's mutually beneficial uh, for some extended period of time? It's conceivable but tricky. First of all, there's a contractual mechanism that's meant to facilitate a termination of the structure in the beginning of January of 2024. But also, there we think there are over two billion of expense synergies as well as revenue synergy opportunities in getting Disney complete control uh, of Hulu. And it will be very hard for Disney to take advantage of those opportunities so long as Comcast is getting 32% of the benefit. This will be Bob Iger's biggest way of making his mark uh, upon his return. Having to make this decision about whether sports are core or non-core is a huge one. What, which way do you think he's going to go? Well, it's interesting. One pushback on my proposed deal has been that sports is the most stable audience on television. And why would Iger allow uh, Disney to, uh, to, to exit that market? But the problem is that the margin available to the television distributor in sports keeps getting narrower. And so while the pie is growing, the slice of the pie available to Disney is shrinking. 
Um, and Disney has a lot on its hands. And so, sure, in a perfect world, it could keep uh, a foothold in sports. Um, but this world isn't perfect. And Disney is uh, facing a lot of hard choices. Exactly. And again, this will be the way that uh, just months into his return, Bob Iger, having to make a, 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 a substantive decision as possible about the identity this will take. Peter, we'll leave it there for now. Uh, we'll bring you back, though, because this is just the tip of what is going to be a very, very interesting year. Comcast, of course, being our parent company. Peter Sapino joining me from Wolf Research. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.